0: Amen. Amen. Children, you are now dismissed, but make sure you hug or high-five your dad on your way out. You may be seated. Well, I I received an email the other day that said, on this day, June 18th, on that Sunday at Chick-fil-A, all fathers eat for free. If you know, chick fil as never open on a Sunday. <laughs> I was so upset. I thought it was for real. Well, uh, let's pray and we will dive into the word of the Lord together. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to worship you in song, in giving, and in hearing of the word. I pray, Holy Spirit of the living God, that you will enliven our ears. You will enliven our eyes. You will enliven our hearts to see and experience and know what you have for us this morning. I pray that this will be a time not just of information, but a time of transformation. Your word is living, breathing, and active. And as we open up the word of God, it is for our lives, for the change of heart, for the movement into deeper, relationship with you be with us in this morning in your name amen amen maybe there are times in your life where you can reflect on how selfish you were one of those times as i was looking at this passage in scripture i was reminded of a new year's eve steak party that we had at my dad's house Now my dad was making prime rib and he was putting it in the oven and making the perfect succulent meat that would be so delicious and for me a little bit or a lot of bit bloody. As we were getting our steak, we were all in line, nieces and nephews and uncles and aunts, we were in line and somehow the nieces and nephews got in the front of the line. This was frustrating enough. But then my nephew, who was about 14 years of age at the time, he purposely grabbed the most beautiful piece of prime rib. And, you know, that was a little bit frustrating for me because I like it a little bit bloodier, and this was the perfect piece of prime rib. So I was a little bit frustrated inside. I was already welling up with a little bit of selfishness. But then he offended me in the greatest way possible. He took this beautiful piece of meat and he doused it with A1 sauce. (laughs) If you're a connoisseur of meat, A1 sauce is only for dry, nasty steak. It's to cover up the, the nastiness of the beef that is so charred that you can't eat it without it. You do not put A1 sauce on a beautiful, bloody piece of prime rib, it is an offense to the cow. Horrible, horrible moment. So I just had this anxiety and frustration, and I thought, oh, you little punk. (laughs) And as I was experiencing that moment of frustration and righteous anger, my wife looks at me and says, honey, what's wrong? And I begin to tell her the offendedness of my heart, and she said, wow, that's really selfish. The Holy Spirit used my wife in that moment. And I saw how ridiculous I was because of the prime rib cut I did not get. But we all have selfish moments, do we not? Now, that's a silly story. Sadly, it was true. But we all have moments of selfishness in our lives where we want what we want. And sometimes we don't care who gets hurt along the way. Now, I could have knocked my nephew over, took his plate, dripped off all of that A1 sauce, and ate it in front of him. But I had a wife who stopped me from my stupidity. We all find ourselves with those moments, and you know we can only realize just how selfish we are when we're called out. It could have been really easy if she wouldn't have seen my frustration, that I could have just continued being selfish, not recognizing my issues. But because she did mention it, I was aware of what was happening in my heart. Paul is doing the very same thing to the Corinthians in this moment. As we read this passage, a theme of the church in Corinth was selfishness and division. And here, Paul is going after another aspect of selfishness within the church of Corinth. And so Paul gives us this answer in this small passage, is how we can live selfless in a selfish world. Now we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13, which if you continue to read in 14 and 15, you know that next week we're going to be dealing with a very heavy topic of homosexuality. And we, I, I, we, we could have gone there with this because it's in context, but I felt like it needed more space than what was provided with this passage. So maybe you saw eight points and you were like, whoo, we're getting out of here early. He loves dads. Nah, I'm not going to do that. If you'd open up your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 13. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13, it'll be on the screen for you. If you're at home, it'll be there for you. You can open up your Bible, your app, however you read the Scriptures. Uh, please open your Scripture with me. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13, the Word of the Lord. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers But brother goes to the law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. This is a very intense passage, as this book is very intense all throughout. And I'm titling this crazy Christians Christians in Court because they were going a little bit bonkers with their own selfishness, their own will. They were applying what they wanted in this moment. And we're going to see four adjustments that we as, as people and as a church need to have in our lives in order to live selfless in a selfish world. And the first adjustment that we need to apply to our lives is to stop seeking the world over the way. Stop seeking the world over the way. At this time, as early Christianity was developing, before they were titled Christians in Antioch, they were called the people of the way. The people of the way. This is their title. This is who they were to be, the way of Christ. That is how they were to live their lives. But here they're living like the world. Paul is using some really harsh language. In that passage, he says, does he dare? Now, I don't know if you've ever said to your child or someone in your life, how dare you? This is exactly what Paul is saying. And in the Greek, it's really strong. It's like a dad disciplining a child with his words. He is not happy. I mean, he's not been happy a lot in this this book. I mean, this is probably, besides Galatians, the most grumpy that Paul gets in Scripture. He is not happy with this church, and he goes after them, saying, how dare you do this? This is absolutely antithetical to the way of Christ. You're taking people into court. You're trying to get your own selfish way because you didn't like the answers that you were getting in the church. One commentator named Garland says this, suing one another before pagan magistrates is something Paul considers a horrid breach of Christian fellowship that could stem only from brazen insolence. How dare anyone do this? I mean, Paul, like I said, is not happy. And here he's bringing about this ridiculous nature of what's happening. That those who are corrupt, that those who do not know Jesus, that those who get paid off, these judges, these unjust, unrighteous people, you're going to entrust issues, brother versus brother there? How dare you do that? Why would you do such a selfish, selfish thing? And at this time, the early church would have known the teachings of Jesus. They might not yet have had the Gospels written down, but they would have known things that Jesus said and did. So when we look at Matthew 18, this church most likely had a framework of how to deal with issues with their brother and sister in Christ. Matthew 18, if you remember, Jesus encourages the disciples, if you have an issue with a brother, go directly to the brother first. Share with them your offense. Share with them what has been difficult in your relationship. And nine times out of ten, when you come to your brother and say, hey, I have this issue, they'll say, wow, I didn't even know I offended you. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. Maybe seven out of ten times. And they would apologize for that. But if they don't, and they don't repent, and they really, truly sinned against you, you then go and grab another brother or sister to confront this issue with this person. And hopefully it can be dealt with in secret. But eventually you have to bring the elders in. If there's no repentance, if there's no change in heart, and they refuse to admit their portion of the offense, then the elders get involved. And if they still continue to refuse, they must have church discipline and leave the church. But here we see that Paul is bringing about how we are to work with one another. And the way they're doing it was more like the world than it was the way. They knew the way, but they were doing whatever they wanted to do. There's a lesson for us in this. We are not to seek the world's answers when you don't like the Lord's answers. Don't seek the world's answers when you don't like the Lord's answers. Most likely, there was an issue that was going on within the church, and these folks knew that this was such a trivial thing that if they brought it before the elders, or they brought it before the church, or if they tried to work on it within Christian living, that it would have been dispelled and dispersed and not dealt with. And so they went to the world saying, I don't like the Lord's answer. I am not going to get what I want from this situation. I am not going to get what I deserve or what's owed to me. And so we're going to go to the world because we know the world will give me what I want. Now, how often do we do that? It might not be an issue where we are taking our brother or sister to court. But how many times do we go to the world when we don't like the answers the Lord gives us? Where the world might say yes to a situation, and you know that the Lord would say no to that situation. Like, well, I mean, the world's going to tell me yes, so I might as well just go to the world. You might not say that in your mind, but that is how your attitude and life is. Paul is calling them out. If you want to live selfless in a selfish world, you have to go to the Lord, receive his answer, and live into it. But too often, we like what we want. When it suits us, we tend to get our answers elsewhere. Not from the Lord, but from man, man's wisdom, or the world. And when we choose the way of the world, we harm our Christian witness. Listen to what Warren Wiersbe says. He says, To take the problems of Christians and discuss them before the unjust and unbelievers was to weaken the testimony of the gospel. Here the people of the way were to be people of love. They were to love one another. They were to work out issues with one another. But to go before corrupt judges and corrupt jurors and the corrupt issue that the corrupt courts that were there in Corinth was to defame the name of Christ. Paul would say it's already a defeat for you that you do this. How often do we live in bitterness embattled with frustration publicly with our brother or sister or just whatever it is that we're just grumpy people here paul is saying listen live selflessly this hinders your witness you're already defeated when you do this just because you don't like the lord's answers doesn't mean you need to go to the world because when we choose the way of the world we harm our christian witness so we're to stop seeking the world and we are to seek to live in the way. And the next uh, addition to our lives that we need to add is to remember. Remember who you are and who you will be. When we die and we're raised to life with Christ, we will rule and reign with him. Wow. I mean, when you stop and think about the end of all things, when we pass away from this life into the next, we sit With Christ. We spend time in the heavenlies. We are then given the ruling and reigning that Christ has given to us. Our lives change eternally when we come to Christ. Our lives are different. We are different people living different lives with a different hope and a different future than those who do not know Jesus. And Paul reminds them of this. He's like, you guys, you're looking at these silly, idiotic, worldly, trivial problems about getting what you want instead of living into who you are. And he's like, do you not even remember? I mean, have you ever had that conversation with people where you know you told them something? You know that you had given an answer to their question, and five minutes later they text you and they say, what what was that again? Happens to me all the time. I do it to my wife way more than I should. But the reality is, is that he's saying you need to remember who you are. Remember your identity as a son and a daughter of the king. Remember that you are going to be ruling and reigning with Christ. And he even says that we'll be ruling and judging the angels. Now, this is kind of an odd statement that he doesn't unpack. Paul can be frustratingly silent on things that he says. Oh, we're going to judge the angels. Paul, what in the world does that mean? He doesn't answer that question. His goal is not to try and get into an eschatological end times uh, theology in this moment. His point is to say that we, as believers, are above creation. All other created things, even angels... When we are in heaven, we are above them. We are below Christ, but we are above everything else. So stop being whiny little babies. You could read that. I mean, it's in the Greek. Whiny little babe? No, it's not. <laughs> I can't lie. Here, I want, I want to make this important statement, too. Because many, many believers in the past have abused this specific passage to allow abuse and criminal issues within their community to happen this is civil issues not criminal some some folks in different denominations in the past would say that oh you know your husband is abusing you we're going to deal with it in church and not go to the law no that's not what he's saying That's not at all what he's saying. We need to recognize this is trivial civil suits. They're suing one another. Hey, you know, you didn't give me that thing you said you'd give me, so I'm going to pull you into court to get what I want. That's the type of trivial thing that he's talking about. And this is how ridiculous this church was, that they were doing this on trivial, non-important matters. They were feeling that they weren't getting what they were owed but also in this idea of who we are and who we will be. He's saying, listen, church, you're going to be entrusted with big things for eternity. You're proving that you can't even be trusted with a little. How can I entrust, or how can the Lord entrust these big things, judging angels, how can he entrust those to you when you deal with these little tiny things? That person stole my pencil, so I demand a new one. I mean, this is how silly it sounded. They were focusing on the wrong things. Say, for example, you're a football player or a soccer player, all right? And their focus was so off, if you're about to get a pass from the quarterback or from the other person on the soccer team, I don't know all their names because I watch football, American football. But imagine you're about to receive a pass and you're just looking at the grass and you're like, wow, the person that mowed this grass is amazing. I wonder what seeds they use for this type of grass. They're focusing on the wrong thing they're probably going to get kicked in the face or the football is going to crack them in the face and they're going to miss what they're supposed to be doing like that ridiculous image of staring at the grass when you're about to receive a pass is how ridiculous paul is saying these people were being their focus was off they were going to hinder mission you can't play a football game when your face is in the grass You need to play the game. You need to focus on what is happening. You've got to watch the person who's throwing to you, the person that might tackle you. You have to be involved. But here in Corinth, they were so distracted by these silly, ridiculous things that they were not in the game. They were not in the game. When we have our identity and eternity in view, man, we will be different people when we stop thinking about these trivial earthly things, we will have a different perspective and we will live differently. When we see that what we do in life really does echo for eternity, man, we will live differently. Our hearts will desire to live for eternity, bringing people to Christ, sharing the good news and the gospel of Jesus. So we're to remember who we are And who we will be. In order to live a selfless life in a selfish world. The third attribute is to break off selfish divisions that hinder Christ's mission. Break off selfish divisions that hinder Christ's mission. So here's what was happening in this this, this church within the city of Corinth. In the Roman and the Greco-Roman world, courts were a big deal. People loved going to court. I mean, more than Americans. They loved going to court. And it would always be the wealthier person who would take the poorer person to court. No poor person who was offended by someone who was wealthier than them would take anyone to court because they would always lose. If you had status, power, and money, when you would go into court, you would win. If your status, power, and money was more than the person that you were trying to sue, it was almost 100% guaranteed that you were going to win. And so this was not just this idea of justice. It was a purposeful put-down to the poor, making the poorer poorer and taking advantage of the system. The judges were corrupt, as Paul shows. They were unjust. They weren't just unrighteous. They were unjust. And here we would recognize then culturally what was happening within this church is that there was a wealthier, higher status person who saw a poorer person in their church not paying their dues. And so they're like, oh, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you because I deserve what's mine. I mean, he already has like seven houses and this person has a shack, but I'm going to take that person to court because they owe me something. I mean, this is how divided this church was. It was d- divided by class It was divided by, you know, religious background, those who were pagan, those who were Jewish. It was divided by who their teacher was, their philosophical understanding. It was divided by their gifts. It was divided by so many things. I mean, just imagine, we we might see in some places where there's this group of people over here and this group of people over here. Imagine if there was like 20 different divisions and they said rich people here and they, they, you know, they blocked it all off. People who have the gift of hospitality here and they blocked it all off. People who were Jewish over here and they blocked it all up. This is how crazy this church was. I mean, it was just bizarre. They were crazy Christians. And this was one issue, that the wealthy within the church were putting down the poor. Because in the kingdom of God, it's upside down. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It shouldn't matter how much money you have or how much power you have or how much status you have or what your background is or what car you drive or if you're a motorcyclist or if you're a soccer person or American football person. These were the silly divisions that were happening within the church but we are all equal at the foot of the cross. One of the things as a pastor that was instilled in me from my mentor Rock Dillman who retired from Allegheny Center Alliance Church is he said this as a pastor Never, ever look at what people in your church give. Never look at it. So I have no idea what any of you give. And it's purposeful. Because if I saw someone giving $47,000 a year, I might be more tempted to spend more time with that person, to make that person happier than the person who spent $1,000 on tithe. Now, I don't think that I would do that, but I don't even want the temptation of that. Because status and wealth and your personal background, those things should not matter in the kingdom because we are all equal. At the foot of the cross, Jesus died for the rich, Jesus died for the poor. And this is what was frustrating these wealthy people in the church. How dare those poor people be just as important as me? I mean, I give so much money. That person probably gives pittance compared to what I give. So I should be able to get what I want. So they go to the world. They didn't like the Lord's answer, so they went to the world's answer because we are to live upside down lives. Garland says this as well. He says the aim of the ancient lawsuit was to prevail over another and that usually involved an assault on the opponent's character. Paul rejects this philosophy altogether. To try to down a fellow Christian before and with the aid of those who do not worship God is completely immeccable to Christian love. What he's saying is, not only was it the rich against the poor, But it would be like today's political campaigns. The only thing you see on TV is this person saying all the bad things about that person. And this person saying all the bad things about that person. There's no actual like, hey, this is what I'm about. Hey, this is where I'm going to go. This is, it's all bad stuff against their opponent." And this is exactly what would happen in the courts within the Corinthian life is that this wealthier person would get up and just say how bad this other person was and how much they deserve what they got because this person's a fool. This person's dumb. This person doesn't know anything. It would be a constant barrage of bad things about this person. And he's saying, you do this to your brother? Why would you do this? How dare you do something like that to your brother? Or your sister in Christ. Now here's another layer that many commentators kind of expose to this. Is that the majority of these people that would have been in this situation. Would have been leaders in the church. They would have been these leaders in the church. That's why he calls them out. They they were leading the charge. Those who were in charge were leading the charge of inequality of wealth versus poor. Status versus non-status. They were running the game, running the show, and it became so infectious within the church that Paul just had been done. He was up to here with this issue. That's why the language is so strong. The church would have been forced to choose. If these leaders were the people that were up front, they would have been forced to choose the, the person who's going to court getting sued or the wealthier person. Well, who do we choose? Oh, I'm, you know, they might have wore buttons. You know, I'm for Johnny, the wealthy. I'm for Bobby, the poor. That's probably what it would have looked like. I know that sounds crazy, but it's what was going on. These selfish men were taking each other to court to get what they wanted, and they were dividing the church When our desires usurp the Lord's desires, we create division. When our desires usurp the Lord's desires, we create division. It is inevitable when you and I start living for our own desires, our own agenda, our own things that we want to see happen, or our own, you know, desire to get what we're owed, then we begin to create division. And a church divided is a church off mission. It's a church that's not doing anything except infighting. Man, that's a sad reality of how many of us have lived or do live. We cannot usurp the desires of God. He's God. He knows way more than you do. His desires are way more important than yours. Garland continues, he says, As a repetition of the reproach that Christians seek justice from unbelievers, it would fit his intention to shame them. Now, this wasn't toxic shame, where he was attacking their identity. He was trying to build their identity up in this. But he's like, you are so wrong that you should be ashamed of yourself. You should look at yourself in the mirror, see what you're doing to your brother and sister, and weep because of how ridiculous it is. But how often do we allow the Spirit of God to challenge us? How often do we allow the Spirit of God to call us out on the agendas and desires that we're trying to do outside of His agenda and His desire? We should look in the mirror and say, man, I'm off track. Holy Spirit, help me get back on track. When division wins within the church, our witness and mission become wayward. Paul's goal in this letter to the Corinthians was not just to call them out on their sin, but to call them back to mission. This church in this wonderful, wealthy city, this was a powerful city. If they could have a strong Christian witness, they would have the ability to send missionaries far across all of the Greco-Roman world. This was a church that was poised for Great things for the mission of Jesus, but they were wasting it. They were not living into the Lord's desires. They were allowing all of these things to hinder them. The mission of Christ within their lives became wayward. We know eventually that they just stopped existing because they did not heed Paul's words. And the division that they allowed killed their church. Maybe many of you have seen churches die. Maybe many of you have been part of churches that were dying or that were dead. I guarantee you that those began dying because of divisions. All of them. I've seen it happen where there was this family against this family, and we wanted this pastor, and they wanted this pastor, and we want this taught in Sunday school, we want that taught in Sunday school, and when things didn't get the way they wanted, they said, we're splitting. I'm sure you've seen it. When division happens in the church, when it wins, the church suffers. The mission, the goal of what we're called to becomes wayward and suffers. Finally, in order to live selfless in a selfish world, we are to pursue the Lord and his justice, not the faulty justice of humanity. They were seeking to find justice in the faulty justice of humanity. The only true justice that we can bank on is not the government, it's not the courts, it's Jesus' justice. And Jesus' justice sometimes frustrates us Because here, Paul says something interesting. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat to you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? He's saying to them, unity is so important in the church that you should be willing to suffer. That your desire, your agenda should be willing to suffer. That's God's justice. I hate that justice. I want to get what I want. I demand that I receive what's owed to me. But he says, listen, you're allowing the church to be so divided. Taking them to court is already defeating your church. Just suck it up. Have you ever had to say that to anybody? Just suck it up. Take the hit. If you're wealthy and someone owes you $5, who cares about $5? You have millions. And you're being a baby about $5. Stop it. Knock it off. How dare you do this? Divide the church over such trivial issues. Knock it off. That's what he says. Now listen. Those those churches that have died in the past over division, the division generally started over some really silly, dumb issue that didn't need to be an issue. You know what I'm saying? Why do we let that happen? Because our desires are more important than God's desires. And we need to knock it off. I need to knock it off. We all do. Now, this could be personal or it could be corporate. Maybe the Holy Spirit is sharing with you some of those issues that you've allowed your family or your church to be divided over with your heart. Maybe you've been selfish like me with that beautiful piece of meat. You don't deserve it all the time. No, actually, we don't deserve anything. But God, everything that we have is a gift. Man, we need to knock it off. I need to knock it off. I'm thankful for someone who is willing to call me out on it. Ask the Holy Spirit, where are those issues that you need to knock off? Because we need to pursue the Lord and His justice, not the faulty justice of humanity. When we seek our way over the Lord's way, we are defrauding the church and our Christian siblings. When we pursue the Lord and seek to come under His justice, we will see a church united on fire and on mission for the Lord. We must stop allowing the enemy to create division in our churches, in our hearts, in our families, in our lives. When we surrender to his will over our will, it's life-changing. When we remember who we are, man, it's life-changing. Let's be people who pursue the Lord and his will and his way. Start by surrendering your own. Give it up. Knock it off. (laughs) Give it to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that we can gather together. I praise you for all of the conviction that you've brought from others and from your spirit to my heart to change, to knock it off. Father, I pray that our focus will be on you. I pray that we will learn the lesson that the Corinthian church did not learn and seek to be united with you first, surrendering everything, even our will, our agendas, and our desires to your will, your desires, and your agenda. Change us. Change me. In your name. Amen.